Welcome to Hustle and Thrive, a working culture podcast for conversations on living, working, and thriving in arts and culture. My name is Yomi John, marketing coordinator at Working Culture and host and producer of this podcast. And I'm Stephanie Draker, Hustle and Thrive co-host and program manager at Working Culture. And we're bringing you part three of our series on equity inclusion in the arts sector, developed in partnership with Curated Leadership. And I'm Shaliza Jamal. I'm an equity and inclusion coach, a theater artist, educator, and the founder of Curated Leadership. And our wonderful guest today is Elaine Alec, who I met through Kevin Joseph last summer when we hosted the Let's Talk Mental Health Conference. Elaine is an Indigenous community builder, author, women's advocate, and spiritual thought leader. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, thank you, Elaine. So have we. We're really excited to uh, learn from you and chat with you. So, Elaine, we're really excited to learn from you about the act of practicing radical self-love. So for this conversation, we'll be covering themes of advocacy, social and racial justice, and the concept of power and privilege. Um, I really like this topic as our series finale because it's so important for inner work and I think for sure self-reflection. So um, I'm just going to go into the first question, and that will be the fact that the topic of self-love is familiar and it is it's quite self-explanatory, but... I think um, the best way is to begin by getting a practical definition of what it is and how useful it is for us. So how would you define self-love and what does it mean to practice self-love as a broad, at a broad level? I've been having this, I, I think my definition of self-love has changed over the last year um, just by having conversations with people um, during a global pandemic, um, because so many people are dealing with trauma and triggering and, you know, our mental health has been suffering because of everything that's been happening in so many different ways, not just the pandemic. And so when I've worked with groups over the last year around self-love, one of the things that uh, we've had to go back to is having a conversation about why we need to practice self-love and identifying the things that kind of hold us back from that. Um, You know, sometimes we think about self-love and self-care as, you know, treating ourselves to something and, you know, doing something for ourselves that might not always be sustainable. It'll help us feel good in the moment, but it's not something then that can be like long-term sustainable um, unless you actually go and deal with some of the things that require you to, you know, those things that make you crash, those things that that pattern of why you're not feeling good. Um, And a lot of people don't want to go there because it's really hard work, um, you know, to deal with some of those things that make us crash. And why do we continue to put ourselves in situations where we're not being honored, where we're not being supported, where we don't feel love? Um, And so, you know, just taking that opportunity, like loving myself to push myself out of that comfort zone to deal with some of those things that might be holding me back, even though they may be scary. I'm glad that we started with, um, you know, a definition and some additional current context of, uh, you know, what self-love and and self-care is, because, you know, I think 
prior to um, you know prior to this podcast, you know, I think when I heard the the terms and thought about the principles, um, I had quite a superficial perception of of what that might mean for myself, and and that might speak very much for myself. Um, but I was looking at it a very outward facing. And, and kind of visual perspective, um, you know, I, I didn't have the, um, the experience of thinking of it uh, in, in the form of, um, you know, an actionable tool or how it might form this kind of solid um, foundation that, that communities can use to heal together from trauma. And, you know, I think that perception, um, as you pointed out, Elaine, has become, you know, ever more elevated over the past couple of years and especially in the past year um, with COVID. So that leads me to our next question on, you know, what might um, influence um, or or impact one's ability to engage uh, in this practice uh, specifically, um, how does or can experiences of um, oppression, uh, injustice and inequity impact the love for oneself? And perhaps how does this extend to uh, the community that person may belong to, you know, particularly when we're thinking about, um, you know, what have been deemed as marginalized or underserved communities? That's such a big question. Um, And such, um, I just, I'm thinking about, so I grew up on the reserve in the interior of British Columbia. And I spent the first few years with my grandma uh, and and rarely ever left the reserve. And when I finally did start spending a lot of time off reserve, it was when I had to go to school um, for kindergarten. I was five years old. And on the first day of school, it was the first time I was called an ugly, dirty squaw. And I was called that by another five-year-old girl. And I continued to hear those things uh, almost every day of my life through my elementary school years from kindergarten to grade seven. Um, And when you hear those things, you start to believe them, those things that are told to you every day. And so, you know, as I grew and as I was also dealing with my own trauma from, you know, growing up with a mom who lived with alcoholism, uh, I started to believe that, you know, I was ugly I was dirty, I was stupid, um, and that nobody would ever want me. And when you believe those things, you start doing self-defeating things to attract those things, to, to have those things from the outside, because you don't naturally feel it inside yourself, because the things that have been told to you, those things that have happened to you, that those lies that have, you know, formed as truth in your head and why you make decisions that you make for yourself. And because of those things that had happened to me and because of the lies happening in my mind, um, I didn't believe that I was deserving of space or love. And so, um, you know, just dealing with all of those realities of what have happened to me and actually address them and work through, you know, how it made me behave in the world were some of the things that I had to do. And it, you know, those things that I had in the back of my head kind of impacted the way that I showed up in the world, how I interacted with other human beings, um, how angry I got at, at everything, you know, because I was hanging on to all of this stuff. Um, And as I grew older and I learned, you know, to address some of those things, to tell myself that those are lies, that they are no longer true, 
um, that I was able to start being a more gentle, loving person to myself. And when I was able to do that with myself, I was able to do that with others and attract that into my life. Um, but it happens, you know, there's so much trauma that happens in marginalized communities and we're taught to fight and we just fight and, you know, we're, we're constantly wanting to be seen and have space made for us or forcing ourselves into spaces. And then when we get there, we kind of stumble because once we we come into that space, we're wondering, well, what next now? What does this look like? And so, you know, I just, I always try to bring that back when I work within my own communities that, you know, it's so important to understand self and begin with that. Um, in order to create a safe space, we have to be a safe space. And in order to do that, we have to have a strong understanding of self. And so, yeah, so much stuff that goes on in communities. And, and so, you know, I just, I feel, I, I talk about these things with my husband often. And, and even though, you know, we're Indigenous peoples who are a marginalized community, you know, my mom and my dad both went to residential school. Um, we still think and believe that we are privileged because we can even have these conversations we're privileged to even be able to reflect on that and, you know, work through our trauma to have these really deep conversations because there's so many people that don't have that. So I was just going to comment on you, you bringing up self, um, being self-defeating, just trying to match all the lies that have been told to one and just brings up that idea of having self or internalized hate which can lead to denial of one's own culture and identity and cause people to, as you said, detach from themselves from their community. And one thing that I find with self-hate is how it also causes people to lean towards the side of the oppressor, which causes further damage and delays success and progression for mar marginalized groups. So I'm glad that you brought up the um, concept of self-defeating and that detachment I was going to say very much similar to what you were saying. It's just, uh, you know, our experiences are different, but they're rooted in the same concept of hating oneself and pulling away from one's uh, ancestral knowledge and heritage to sort of conform to the dominant because that's what we're told is good, is pure, and, you know, is clean. Um, so I really... Uh, that really resonated with me. And so just wanted to thank you for that. Um, okay. So I wanted to ask you, Shaliza, because you are, you do equity and inclusion. You're an expert for the arts community. And I wanted to ask in the context of the arts, what ways do you think this, these issues affect creativity and success for artists and arts organizations, just from that arts perspective, since Elena has already shared from that community. Sure. Area. Yeah, I think they're so connected. So for me, as a theater artist, I've been on the stage doing uh, musical theater, dance, uh, you know, um, a lot of different forms of art since I was about three years old. And the very same things apply. I was often the only person of color growing up in Vancouver on the stage uh, in my age group. And that self-hate does show up again and again, or that idea of white supremacy and that system and structure that is created. For example, you know, I would always see that I was, uh, you know, in a costume that was different than my peers, right? That was one way. 
Or when I was in high school, I was, you know, memorizing every Shakespearean sonnet and thought that was the best way to get, um, you know, into the best theater school was I must know Shakespeare. And so what happens there is there's a sense of erasure of one's own identity and culture. And there is the perpetuation of the dominant culture being that of, uh, you know, European theater, theater and uh, white folks in art. I was in um, the BC Festival of the Arts and I'm a petite person. I'm 4'11". And I do have light skin privilege as a South Asian. But I was in this festival and I was cast as Juliet. It was all Shakespeare. And the lady said to me, you know, you'll always play either the maid or the damsel in distress because of the way you look, because you're petite and also because you're a woman of color. And it wasn't, she didn't mean it in a derogatory way, but almost as a statement of a reflection of the arts and what we're using. And so when I think about that in today's context, and actually the reason why I came into theater, which I believe I've spoken about before, is the murder of Rena Virk. When Rena Virk was murdered in Duncan, BC, by her white classmates, for me, that was a turning moment. Part of me wanted to reject my South Asian-ness or my heritage even more, right? Because I thought, okay, I'm feeling similar things that Rena was feeling and she ended up murdered, right? By people she thought was, were her friends. And the other side of me said, wait a minute. I need to create some theater that's for social change and social good and learn to reclaim that self-love. So that was like the two part of me. And I was only 17, 18 at this time uh, when we started working on, on, on work. But I was the same age as Rena. So we were 14 um, when she was murdered. And that's when these things started to happen in my brain. And there was a shift also into creating pieces of theater that were not Moliere, Shakespeare. And so as I went to theater school and university, that became sort of the norm. And so there was this shift from that erasure to a reclaiming of self. And for me, that meant understanding what were the ways in which I could demonstrate my own ancestral knowledge in the theater. And so to answer your question about self-love and healing and trauma and the ways in which it shows up in the context of the arts, I think for artists and arts organizations, it's a matter of questioning, are we reproducing systems and cycles of oppression through our casting, through our programming, through our audience, even through our policies? Or are we thinking about a new way of doing things, firstly? And secondly, are we perhaps unconsciously or consciously acting out of erasure, right? Are we having just, uh, you know, Indigenous artists uh, spotlighted? you know, South Asian art spotlighted? Or are we infusing teachings, artists, writers, dancers as part of our programming, right? And and what does that look like? Because I think what happens is for me as an artist, it really went into this idea of being brown is not cool. I'm never going to be an actress, right? And now things have changed in today's society in terms of you know, the artists we see out there, Maya Trier and, uh, you know, Mindy Kaling and, and many other, Priyanka Chopra, etc. But for me, in the context of the arts, these issues really affect creativity because we are stifled. 
as an artist, I can say I wanted to fit into a box, but I knew that box didn't, wasn't for me. And so it was really about wrestling and I still wrestle with it about creating a space, a new space for myself, because otherwise I felt like, um, my art was going to be, um, held back. And in the same vein, speaking to similar examples that Elaine said, it also showed up as sort of a a self-hate, right? And that interpersonal oppression of thinking, oh, well, people say all Indians are smelly. Yes, all Indians are smelly. I don't want to associate. I'm going to try to be as British and Shakespeare as I can, right? And I think that all relates back to that internalized trauma and oppression that is replicated in in arts organizations when we are not thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And so, you know, to hear Elaine's story about schooling and arts organizations are just a similar structure and system that can also reproduce those feelings of hate. Um, And they can also be opportunities to practice and engage in self-love. Absolutely. Which I think brings me to a point Elaine, that I wanted to ask you about, you know, you talked about safe spaces, Um, you know, in your book, you talk about cultivating safe spaces. And I'm talking about uh, Elaine's book, Calling My Spirit Back. I read this over and over and many of your teachings, uh, both from you and your ancestors. And I wanted to speak to you a little bit about how we can cultivate and practice self-love as a form of advocacy. And, you know, thinking again about some of the four protocols that you shared about cultivating safe spaces and how that's a form of advocacy. I am just so happy to have this conversation. I just feel so good um, having a reciprocal conversation where we're sharing with each other and it's not just kind of taking knowledge. I think that's one of the things too, like, as you were talking about, like a spotlight on and, you know, we're it's, it's the thing we're talking about now. And so I constantly feel like I'm in a teaching position and it feels very one-sided mm-hmm. and it's very draining. And I was just talking about that today and how I'm losing that sense of connection with people. And I feel like I'm gaining that today, being in this space with all of you and and having this conversation back and forth where we're learning from each other. Um, And I think about, you know, I'm thinking about the, the part of my book where I talk about cultivating safe space and the four necessary conditions and the four protocols. And those four protocols came from the protocols that I utilize in the, in the ceremonial circles that I host and also came from teachings from my uh, business partner, Jesse Hemphill. She talked about the four colonial tools um, that have been used on everybody. Um, And often, you know, we talk a lot about nested systems in the work that we do. And we're constantly sharing like this, these nested systems don't belong to Indigenous peoples. These systems belong to everybody before colonialism occurred all over the world. We came from these systems where we knew when you made one decision for one thing that it impacted another. And that we think about all of these things when we're making decisions for for whatever that is. And so 
you know, colonialism was done to everybody. And the four tools um, of colonialism that we identified was promoting sickness and death. And not just like sickness and death for of body, but that mental health, that sickness, that self-hate, the spiritual sickness, you know, being told that your belief systems aren't worthy or that they're, um, that's worshiping the devil or all of those things that we were told about our, our, our beliefs, um, promoting exclusion you know, really making sure that people were excluded from making decisions. When um, settlers first came to Canada, our systems were built in matriarchy, where the women were the leaders who advised our leadership um, how to make the best decisions for community because our women were directly involved in the caretaking of the community, of the elders, of the raising of the children, knowing what the needs were. But when uh, the first settlers came um, to talk to our leadership, they refused to talk to the women. They only wanted to talk to the men. And so that was introduced into, you know, right off the bat, we were, we were, it was shown that we weren't important, that our voice didn't matter. And so, you know, our own people began to believe that and it started to shift within our own communities. Um, the other one was promoting oppression, finding ways to oppress. And the other was promoting shame you know, promoting shame for everything you are, everything that you know. Um, and then, you know, we talk about lateral violence within our own communities, how we've used these tools against each other, because through these tools, our power has been taken away from us through so many different ways. And when we begin to feel powerless, we try to find ways to take it from the outside. So I want this power, so I'm going to take it from somebody else. And for me to feel bigger and more powerful, I'm going to do my best to make you feel small and insignificant. And so we begin to do that to ourselves and to each other. And we're continuing that cycle of colonialism within our own groups. And so how do we decolonize? Um, we begin by promoting well-being. We promote well-being of mind, body, spirit. We promote inclusion. And when we promote inclusion, that doesn't mean just including people that we like. It doesn't mean just including people that think like us. It means including everybody, all, all people from all backgrounds, you know, different perspectives, different experiences, even if I don't agree with you, even if what you're saying doesn't make sense to me. And then we promote validation. And so validating that the way you feel, the way that you think, the way that you are, those are all important. And, you know, even if I don't understand it, that you are still validated in everything that you are and, and how you show up in this space. And then finally, promoting freedom, understanding that we have a freedom of choice. You know, that, you know, we have to know that we can make decisions for ourselves. All of those things promotes that self-love, but more importantly, it promotes that self-determination. And we start building that trust and love within ourselves so that we can make decisions that's good for us as humans and not based on what rules and policies and laws are put in place on how to be within the system that controls. And so I always ask people, are you making decisions, creating agendas, um, doing your planning? from a place of love, which is based in trust and faith and love, or a place of fear, 
which is control and making sure that we kind of figure out and know what the outcome is because we can control that space. Um, so yeah, there, I, you know, that work is we, I, I talk about this work in every space that I come into to change the way that we're thinking and showing up, um, even for each other, where there's so much lateral violence that happens within our organ, our own organizations, we're competing against each other for space. And there's such a language to make space for me, and you're not allowed in the space. And one of the things that I try to incorporate is we all belong, we all need to share the same space, including our allies, you know, including our white allies of privilege. Because if we force them out of space, we're just doing to them what they did to us. And so it's up to us to create that space and show them how to be inclusive by not excluding them and realizing we all deserve the same space. And, you know, there's so many, there's so many things about that that's such a sensitive thing to say um <laughs> but you know when i think about our teachings and and our stories about fly and the stories about our four food chiefs that tell us how to behave and how to act and how to treat people um those things tell us what we're supposed to do to create that space of love and inclusion and i think about racism and i think about you know my mom when i'd come home after being told I was an ugly, dirty squaw, and I'd come home and cry. And I never really knew what the names meant. I knew they were bad, though. My mom and my tama would say, feel sorry for them. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what it's like for them at home. They don't, you know, they don't have a sense of belonging to this place. This isn't the land that they come from. You know, they don't have a sense of identity of who they are, you know, or what their beliefs are. And so thinking about that, that, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that Canadians can make is focusing on the healing of just Indigenous peoples. And that reconciliation means taking a look at yourself and not the other person. And so, you know, I think about all of these things passed on by my grandparents, so much love, so much love, no matter how badly the other person was behaving, that we had to develop this patience and love for them, because we don't know their story, you know, and that feeling that self hate that somebody must have to put that on somebody else and the hurt and harm that they've gone through and what they've experienced, you know, that lack of sense of belonging that they're having to create this artificial, you know, white supremacy because that's all they know. And what mm -hmm. would happen if we started welcoming everybody into the space um, and believing that all people had purpose um, and, and I just want to share one more thing about that. The One of the teachings that my elders told me around that to kind of bring more context into why I, I have such patience and love for, 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 you know, people we're usually attacking for taking space from us. But um, when I first started doing this work and going out into communities, one of my teachers said, Think of Coyote, and Coyote was our trickster, and he was almost like Jesus. I compare him to Jesus because everybody kind of knows who Jesus was. But think of, you know, think of Coyote. Coyote was preparing the land for the people to come. It was, you know, we only had animal people on this land before humans. 
and Coyote was sent out to to um, to take care of the people eaters, the people, the the beings that were going to eat people or harm people. Coyote was sent out to transform them into something useful, and she said, "Remember that Coyote did not set out to destroy them. Coyote set out to transform them." And so as you do this work and you and you run into people eaters today, whether that's corporations or, you know, these things that destroy the relationship of humans, to not set out to destroy them, you know, or do to them what has been done to you, we set out to transform them, transform the way they think, share from that place of love and understanding. And so I think about our seven generation teachings is that I will never be able to accomplish, you know, what needs to be done in my lifetime. But the work that I do today is going to change something for the next seven generations, for my children, my grandchildren, my great grandchildren. And to believe that that change can happen in my lifetime is ego. (laughs) And that my only goal in life is to shift things by 1%. And that makes this work a little bit easier on me. I don't feel the burden of changing things in my lifetime, but if I do everything that I can do within my lifetime to shift things, then we can start transforming those things for our future generations. Thank you, Elaine. There was just so many pearls of wisdom there. I think when I think about what you said, I see that Self-love is not only about the self or the advocacy or reconciliation piece. It's about love for others and love for community. And I also really heard you say that it's about validating. And those things really stuck out for me because it's about validating each other. And I think that perhaps is what, in my opinion, for myself, what was missing in my own journey. But also when I hear you talk about your Tema and your mom's uh, statement about the girl who had uh, called you uh, derogatory words when you were in kindergarten and that idea of uh, sending love their way because what must they have been experiencing? I really think about that idea of validation. I think it's really important to consider it that way because I do agree we're often at odds with each other, either within our own communities or with other communities of color, indigenous communities, other historically marginalized communities. But instead, if we see it as a way to come together, then we can really uh, see some change. I really like that because if we're healing ourselves and not healing those around us, the systems are going to be reproduced. So I uh, really appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, it's enthralling listening to the both of you because, um, you know, as as somebody who um, you know has been working in the arts and culture sector as as a person of color, I, I've had a lot of doubt throughout my career around you know whether or not uh, I'm being invited into spaces authentically, and and you know I mean it really is just echoing what what um, you know both Elaine and and Shaliza were saying about that validation piece. It's it's so important um, in, in terms of you know being able. Um, to, to look at my career and understand where I'm anchored so I can support other people. And, and that's really where I think, um, you know, I had kind of stopped off with my impression of what self-love and self-care could be um, for myself because I was looking at it at a very inward kind of focus and, and not realizing just how out, outstretched it can become um, when you're taking that community in mind and how then it's kind of shifting from this kind of 
um, almost like charitable kind of focus to this this justice framework um, that that is empowering and that does allow us to become um, actionable. Elaine, I mean, you've shared some words of wisdom, and I mean, I I feel like I've thought of these things in the same line that you've described them, but I just did not know have the language to actually like the words to describe these four. Um, what did you say, four colonial tools and then the ways to ch- make those changes, the things that we should promote, like validation, freedom, well-being. Um, it just reminds me of being a Black person and how we have to, um, re- like, it reminds me of the rift that occurs in the Black community among, say, um, Black people from the diaspora, Black people from the continent of Africa and how we have to understand that it is some there is a system that causes our rift and we need to stop our rift and just forget about what we've been taught the lies that we've been taught to think about each other because it's because of white supremacy and colonization is the reason why we have this infighting within community and by just ignoring those lies that have been told about us then we focus on the things that we need to work together to make things better by validating our individual experiences. Because a Black person from the diaspora is going to have a similar but very different experience as a Black person that comes from the continent of Africa. Like, our our experiences are so different. Even within the continent, I mean, there's ethnocentrism that it occurs. Like, it's just, as someone who's Nigerian and thinking about, like, Yoruba people, Igbo people, like people from the north, like this, just like infighting. And by explaining how we need to focus on just thinking inwardly and promoting well-being, promoting freedom, that I don't know, it, it's just a great way to think about self-love. And as Shaliza and Steph mentioned, it's about it's not just about the inside. It's just it's about uh, outward charity. And I think this also brings me to my next question because I've talked about this rift within communities. And I want to know how can marginalized folks practice self-love, radical healing, and compassion? Like, what is the best ways that we can, the best practices for us to start thinking in that line? Yeah, I think, you know, when, so what I talked about those tools and how to do the opposite of that, those are the protocols for cultivating safe space. And, and those are things to do, you know, when you do something for self, you do it for family, you do it for community and you do it for land. And so when we have healthy land, we will have healthy people. When we have healthy people, we'll have healthy land and the state of our land is a reflection of the state of the people right now. And so that's the way, you know, we think when we make plans and and do things within communities, it's kind of that when, when people say the holistic approach is understanding that when we do one thing for this, this is how it impacts all of those other things and how they all tie into each other. And so when I talk about that, I also talk about the four necessary conditions to cultivate safe space. And the number one condition is understanding self you absolutely have to have an understanding of self 
Um, you have to understand who you are, where you come from, what you bring into the space, and what triggers you. What don't you have patience for? How might you react if you hear something that you don't like? What are the thoughts that go on in your head when you hear somebody that just kind of makes your blood rise? What what judgments do we have about that? Um, and those are such important things to understand um, because once we do that, we were able to create a space of love-based practice, patience and discipline, not just for other people, but for ourselves. And so, you know, I think about that and understanding self. It's so many times we want to fix our family. Our family has issues or, you know, our brother's doing something stupid or, you know, my mom is making bad decisions. I've got to do something about that. Um, there's something going on in my own community. I need to become an advocate. I need to like fight really hard to like help my community. You know, the land is being, you know, totally obliterated because of all of these things. We have land defenders out there like putting their lives on the line to protect the land. And we wonder why things aren't changing. You know, the, the way the system works is we're focusing on family. We're focusing on community. We're focusing on land. But we don't focus on the very center of the system, which is us as the individual. Because it's scary and it's really hard work. Why, why am I so angry? Why am I so unforgiving? Why am I carrying this burden? Why does this stir this ugly feeling inside of me? Why does my blood rush faster and my heartbeat start picking up? Um, you know, we don't want to deal with that. And so we focus outward. And, you know, you could look at a relationship that you have with an individual, like an intimate relationship you have. You know, you'd rather when you have a fight, you'd rather blame and criticize and condemn them for their actions in the relationship than focus on what your role was in that. And so, you know, when I think about that, there's so much trauma that so many groups have gone through, so much stuff. And I think about the work that I do around vicarious trauma and resiliency. And there's a there's a phrase that I have on one of the very first pages of the PowerPoint that I present. And it says, um, to be exposed to um, traumatic things on a day, to grief and loss on a day-to-day -day basis, and to think that you're not being impacted is like walking through water and not getting wet. And so, you know, in our communities, we we suffer and we witness these things every day. We see loss and we see violence and we see grief and we experience these things, but we've become so hardened and we've become such warriors that we go into fight mode. And that's the space that we're living. We don't give ourselves the time and the space to focus on how that's actually impacting us. I was working with families around missing and murdered, and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And we've had lifelong advocates you know, who've been fighting for 30 to 35 years, wanting to get a national inquiry into why we have MMIWG in Canada. And we finally got it. We finally got the government to do a national inquiry. And I talked to one of the, the family members and advocates. We hosted a space for some really hard conversations. 
And she said, I've just been fighting for the last 35 years. And now that this is happening, I need to heal. I've fought for 35 years without giving myself the space to heal. And I think that's where so many of our marginalized communities are. We're just fighting, 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 and we keep forgetting about ourselves and thinking that this cause is so big that I'm sacrificing myself to this cause. I'm martyring myself for this cause. And we lose that love for self. Um, and so understanding that when we take the time to put that love and healing into ourselves, to cry and be vulnerable and feel and, and address those things, that that isn't weakness, that that's not going to slow us down, um, that it's actually going to impact how we show up in, in spaces and how people receive us and how open they're going to be. Um, and there's another piece too, you know, that I talk about alongside this, which is the perspectives, we're all going to do things differently. You know, some people are going to do things and advocate based on that relationship building, based on educating and spending time with allies and, and holding that burden, you know, that people talk about of doing that work, you know, and then there, we're going to have action people, the frontline people who are like directly on the ground, you know, taking direct action to make change happen. Um, and they're often called radicals or terrorists, or, you know, they're given all of these words like land, there are land defenders in our communities, we call them our land defenders, but they're radicals to the government, right? They, and that is important to them, they're going to do things and they're going to think it's a waste of time for us to build relationships with allies. And we're going to think that it's a waste of time for them to be throwing their bodies on the line and getting thrown in jail. But our stories tell us that those two ways of doing things are still important. And it's a combination of everybody doing what makes sense to them in the way that they know that when we combine all of those things, we can all move forward together, that we're still doing the same work, we're just doing it in a different way. And if we can support each other and love each other, and say, you know, just because you're not showing up where I am, doesn't mean you don't think that this work is important, that you're still valid in the way that you're doing this. And that is important. And if you're doing, if everybody's doing what I'm doing, then we're missing all of those other perspectives to move forward. Yeah, that's a really great point because it just reminds me of what you said earlier, Elaine, about the 1%, giving 1%. And I think, in a sense, that is enough because as since everyone's doing different things in different ways, if everyone contributes in that way, it would reach up to 100%, if my math is right. But you know what I mean? So as long as giving that much and contributing in some way that is enough. I just wanted to add something, you know, and I think you you spoke about this earlier where a lot of folks think self-love is just like going to the spa and meditating and journaling. And not to say it's not that, but it's also taking care of yourself so that you can be there when called upon. And I think that's a hard thing. I think for me as a woman of color, I just like the example of the woman you talked about, it's like doing the fight, right? And I think that's programmed into me and many other women of color to advocate and fight. And this is our purpose. We have to give, 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 give. 
And I, I really liked what you said because it reminded me that we have to also replenish um, ourselves and give back to ourselves. And that's really what that self-love is about uh, and that it doesn't have to be in a, in a martyrdom sort of way, but it can be in a way that is gracious and kind and giving. Um, so that really resonated with me. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It, um, you know, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge, you know, where that, that exhaustion arises. And, and, and you know, I've, I've seen it especially over the past year and it's just been so apparent um, you know, to, to me and other people in my family, um, you know, especially as of late, um, it also starts to, you know, make, make me think that there's, you know, an opportunity for people in power to start contributing to the narrative and create, you know, almost that kind of like inner, um, imperative in the form of, of compassion or, you know, in, in, in the sense of radical compassion to help change the reality um, of, of communities experiencing that kind of trauma or trying to heal from that trauma um, and, and, you know, recover from that pain. Um, and I'm wondering, um, you know, Elaine and Shaliza, if you've had any comments on, you know, what radical compassion and self-love might look for for people in places of power or in places of privilege, um, you know, who may, may not be experiencing um, this trauma but have an ability to help alleviate it. Um. I do a lot of work with uh, governments, uh, in particular provincial governments right now in British Columbia. And one of the things when we come into the space um, to have important conversations or hard conversations is I always share with them that I'm not expecting you to show up in this space knowing everything about Indigenous peoples. You don't need to speak our language. You don't have to know the territory. You don't, you know, these are good things to know, but those aren't requirements for you to show up in this space. Requirements to show up in this space to contribute together is showing up with your purpose and what you're good at, and what you know. And so working for the province, you know the policies and the legislation and the mandates within the group you work with. And so when we share our vision and our goals as Indigenous peoples looking to assert our self-determination, you're going to start thinking about the, oh, we can't do that. That's not possible because of, I want you to hold on to those things and, and write them down. These are the things that we can't do right now because of. And I want you to utilize your experience and your knowledge and your purpose to find ways to shift those systems because that's what you know. And we are going to continue to work on our path to assert our self-determination, um, revitalizing our Indigenous languages and knowledges, and utilizing those to heal our communities. We don't need to be healed or fixed. We know we have what we need to do that. We need you to start focusing on how to shift your systems um, so that it makes you know, this a reality for us. And so that's the, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion there when we start working with allies is we think we have to like build them up to know everything about us. And it start it's, it's scary and intimidating. And it's, and it's, and it's the way we create colonial systems and jobs and 
positions and roles within companies is that we create job descriptions based on getting a job done and expect people to come into these jobs knowing all of these things. But meanwhile, we're only good at certain things. And then what we're not good at, we start to beat ourselves up about. So we start to question ourselves. We start to not feel good enough. We start to, you know, feel all of these self-defeating things, trying to fulfill this job that's created to do, you know, a task or a deliverable or whatever that work is instead of building positions and, and goals around the people and building teams of people to pick up pieces of that work um, to move it forward. And so, you know, always focusing on the strengths of people and how they show up and honor that strength and not say you're not doing good enough because you're not, you don't know enough about me. Yeah. I think that's, um, you know, we don't want it done to us. So why are we doing it to others? And just asking people to show up with who they are and contributing in that way to make positive change. I was going to say, you know, I think it goes back to what you talked about, love for yourself, but also giving and extending that love to others and that compassion because people don't know what they don't know. And so I know that some folks really have the calling out approach. For me, I have the calling in approach because I don't think we can move ahead or accomplish anything if we don't call people into conversation and meet them where they're at. And I think that goes to also what you said about a a job, right? Folks aren't going to learn and know everything. I also think it's important for folks who are in privileged positions or dominant, uh, you know, statuses in society to also leverage their privilege, just sort of what Elaine said, right? You know, the system leverage that privilege to open the doors and to bring someone to that metaphorical table, for example, because that perspective might be really valid. Uh, So I think leveraging privilege um, and putting your privilege and sometimes your status or your, your reputation on the line for what is, for what is right is also really important. But I think recognizing that shared humanity that we have, that we're all on the same team. It's not me against you, against you that if we want to move things forward for our humanity, for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, we have to lead with love. And I think sometimes I forget that too, right? That we have to lead with love because that's what's going to feed our soul for self-love, uh, not the anger and the resentment um, as Elaine was sharing. So I really like that. Um, I have a comment. I don't know if it relates, but it's just something that... Um that I've been thinking about when it comes to like radical compassion coming from privileged folks. And I know that the, the example that Elaine, you gave, I, from my, my assumption is that it's coming from how, so that the privileged folks are say white people, but then I'm also thinking about when the privileged folks are marginalized people, people who have sort of, made it and um, have become privileged and have are, are now working side by side with other uh, privileged people who are white. And then it makes me think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's just a thought that came to my mind. It makes me think of how um, 
sometimes when we become as marginalized folks, when we become successful and we're starting to do well, that and we reach positions of power that offer us certain privileges that we we need to be mindful of how we could change how our thinking would change and how sometimes we start leaning towards the um, ways that white privilege operates and that we should also be mindful that although we might change, that we should try to reflect on our new behaviors and not lose our compassion. So it's just something that I've thought about when we're talking about privileged folks because I want to also bring up the um, bring up that some sometimes when people people who are marginalized can become privileged and might start to use their privilege in ways that are not beneficial to their respective communities. I feel that all the time, you know, when I'm when I work, I because I grew up in such poverty. Um, and grew up the way that I did, you know, and then I, I became this raging alcoholic by the age of 12. And I was violent. And I, I lied and I stole and I manipulated. And I got thrown in the back of cop cars for fist fighting in the middle of the street. And, you know, I, I didn't have anything. I didn't have power in my house. I would have been homeless if I didn't have my mom's home on reserve, which was a band-owned home that my mom was able to pay off before her stroke. And I, I would have been homeless because I couldn't pay the power bill. I couldn't buy groceries. You know, if I got $20, I had to think about how am I going to get food to last for this week but I don't have a car, so I need a ride. Uh, we don't have bus service on the reserve. And so nobody else is going to give free rides on the res. So I have to give 5 to $10 of this $20 to them to drive me to town to get food. And I that was all my life. That was the only thing I knew. And so I was only able to plan for that day. I was only able to see what was happening over the next few hours. And so, you know, when I work with corporations or businesses or governments who are trying to engage Indigenous communities in planning, I say, this is our reality. This is, and you're asking us to see our vision for the next five to 10 to 20 years, you know, when, when we can barely think beyond what we're dealing with today and where that anger comes from, and why we're not able to contribute, um, and understanding that it's because I have the privilege to be able to work from the most beautiful part of my brain, because I've been able to work past those trauma, you know, the PTSD, the complex stress disorder, all of those triggers that bring me and pull me into the lower part of my brain, where I can't function, I can't think straight, you know, I can't be creative or problem solve. I'm just living in this part of my brain because of the reality that I'm living in right now. And where so many of my people live right now, you know, living in that reality. And, you know, the, where I was saying it's a privilege for me to be able to move past my trauma brain into the most creative, beautiful part of my brain that feels safe and feels loved and where I'm able to contribute to solutions and think in that space. 
Um, and it, it takes a lot of work to be able to move into that space. And so, you know, when I'm working with communities or when I'm working with different groups of people, I'm coming into the space understanding that it's such a privilege and it sucks. It sucks that it has to be a privilege that I can function in a thinking brain and not from a trauma brain. And, you know, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is that there's certain days that I wake up and I can't leave my house because something has triggered me. And I, and I sit in front of my computer and I can't work. I have writer's block because I'm triggered and I'm traumatized. And I will try to force myself to be creative and write. And I just sit in front of my computer staring at it all day. And I've had to learn to say something is going on with me. I'm not going to work today. And to let the people know that it's not my time right now. I need to take care of myself. I need to go to the water. I need to go into the mountains. I need to be with my family. I need to cuddle my son to move myself back into the safe part, of, like where I feel safe and where I feel good. And that eight hour day that I, you know, didn't waste in front of my computer, I'm able to, you know, show up feeling safe and love the next day and accomplish that work in an hour and a half because I'm living in this part of my brain. And so, you know, I, I work with a lot of groups and, and mention that, especially, you know, we're living in a global pandemic. We're witnessing so much violence on TV and the news. You know, we're all impacted by that. And it impacts the way we show up in spaces and, and how we contribute. And, and it can be so easy to start being action oriented and leave people behind uh, when you finally get to that space in your brain, right? Like, this is the first time I've ever been able to do this <laughs> and work like this and advocate like this. Um, but also remembering that that's where I come from and, and I have to remember those people, you know, and what they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis and, and creating that space for people to contribute in ways that, that are, that are, that feel good for them, you know, and it's, um, it gets, some days are harder than others. You know, some days I can't even talk like this. Some days I, you know, I, I just, don't want to deal with anything because it's just too much. You know, it's too much. I can't deal with it right now. And there's other days where I can be very on and very love-based and very, you know, optimistic and, and focus on the work that we need to do to move forward. And there's other days where I feel completely defeated and this sucks so bad. And I cry for like three days. Um, but being gentle with myself and saying it's okay and this too shall pass and to allow myself to go through those things and validate myself. It's okay for me to be sad. It's okay for me to be angry. It's okay for me to hole up by myself and not give myself away anymore like this day right now um, so that I can show up, you know, when I'm feeling good and able to, to do the work. Yeah, thank you so much, Elaine. Um, I mean, you've shared so many powerful words. You've introduced us to new concepts and language that we might not even have thought of. And you've also shared about your own personal experiences that is a great eye-opener so that our listeners can be able to understand where this um, 
idea of self-love and self-love as advocacy is rooted in. Um, and I think as this is our final, um, the final episode of this three-part series, it's very good for just really thinking deeply and being reflective of our own behaviors and how we've thought about ourselves, the self-hate and how we've pulled ourselves out of that and starting to love ourselves and starting to um, expressing that love towards our family, then spreading out to our community and then ending that cycle of um, colonization and the lies that they've made us believe to not like ourselves and others like us who are marginalized. Um, I mean, I'm really grateful for you joining us. And I don't know if anyone else has any things to share before we close with, um, with Elaine. I just wanted to add for me, my key takeaways are really to practice self-love. I have to take care of myself and to practice self-love. I have to take care of others. And so I really appreciate what you just said in the end about being kind to ourselves and what I'm interpreting is having grace for ourselves and modeling that for others. Because I think in this capitalistic, colonial capitalistic society, it's difficult to advocate for ourselves and say, I need a minute, I need a beat. You know, and I think as mental health and wellness are becoming more popular terms and part of workplace practices, I think we're getting more and more aware of that. But I really think that's important to be able to do the work, if you will. We have to be well. And to be well is to practice that self-love in perhaps a radical way, as Audre Lorde says. Mm -hmm. So I thank you for that. And thank you for that uh, reminder today as uh, things every day are difficult and there's good days and there's bad days to keep practicing radical self-love. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Working Culture. It's hosted by Yomi John, featuring co-hosts from the sector and edited by Santiago Bidoya. If you like our episodes, we want to hear your comments and please subscribe. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And for more Hustle and Thrive, check out our website at creativeworksconference.com. Join us again.